we begin our time of study in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for this great day of worship, for the songs and prayers and scripture and and all that we've already participated in. Lord, as we come to this time of opening your word to understand what you would say to us, Lord, I pray that you would work through me, your clay vessel, to speak words of life to these, your people that we might leave this place ready to serve you and ready to live in holiness and newness of life. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 7 again. And we're back in our study of Romans after taking a couple of weeks of... uh, I I took a break from it to preach from Genesis. And then we stopped... uh, Then I wasn't here last week. And so uh, we're back in our study of of the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking at that verse or that set of verses that I said last time were some of the most difficult in the whole book. In fact, in my opinion... Uh, The passage we're going to read today is the most difficult passage in the whole book of Romans. And it's not because it's uh, difficult, it's hard on us, but it's, it's just a difficult passage to interpret, a difficult passage to understand exactly what Paul is meaning here. And so that's been my struggle in getting ready to to preach this passage, but I want to bring to you what the Lord has has given me to say for this uh, set of verses, and I hope that they encourage and build you up. But in order to understand what Paul is talking about in these verses from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, we need to do a good bit of review because we've been away from it for a while, and uh, it, it rests very heavily on some things that Paul has already said. So remember, first of all, that this passage is is fixed at the beginning of a set of questions that Paul is asking and answering about the gospel that he presented in chapters 1 through 5. And I've said before that chapters 1 through 5 is pretty pretty basic stuff. It's it's gospel. We understand that we're all sinners, that we all deserve the judgment of God, and that we can't be righteous in and of our own good works. And if we're going to be righteous before God, then there has to be another way of righteousness. And so Paul says that there is, and there has been, all throughout the history of God's work in the world, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there has always been this other way of righteousness. And it is the way of righteousness by faith, in the promises of God. And so he shows in chapter 4 that those promises, that that Abraham was justified by faith, that he believed the promises of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to say that it is because of faith that we now have peace with God. And it is through faith that we are transferred, if you will, from the the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ. That everyone who is in Adam, everyone who has ever born, been born is under the curse that Adam was under. That we are under the curse of death. We're under the curse of sin. And everyone who is in Christ is in life. That we, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have newness of life, and we have the promise of eternal life and 
resurrection. And so all of that is we get and we understand that that is the hope of the gospel. But as I've said, Paul begins in chapter 6 to ask and answer some hard questions about what he's already said. And so back in chapter 6, he started by asking, okay, if we're saved by grace, if it's totally by faith and by God's mercy that we're saved, then does that mean that we should go on and sin that grace may abound? If God's grace is magnified in his forgiveness of sin, then should we just keep sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul's answer is an emphatic no. In fact, some translations say by no means. So because we are dead to sin uh, and we have been set free from the law, we, as Paul puts it, we can't go on sinning. We wouldn't want to go on sinning because we have died to that sin and we have been set free from the law. Well, then that raises another question that Paul goes on to ask, and that is, okay, well, if we've been set free from the law, then that, does that mean that we should go on sinning? You know, if, if the law doesn't apply to us anymore, then we can finally do the things the law forbade. We can, we can go out and we can commit adultery and we can covet other people and we can do all these things because the law doesn't apply to us anymore. And to answer that, Paul gives two analogies. First, he says that we are like slaves and we have been freed from one master, namely sin, and we have been uh, put under another master, which is the spirit. And so because we have set, been set free from sin and we now serve God's spirit, we want to live holy lives. And not only do we want to live holy lives, but we can live holy lives because God gives us the power through his spirit. And the second analogy we covered last time from chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. And there Paul compares the relationship that we have to the law to that of a marriage. And he says, you know, if a woman is married to a man and that man dies, she is no longer bound to that covenant that she made with her first husband. She is free to go on and marry someone else. And in the same way, because of Jesus' death on the cross, he put the law to death. The covenant that was bound up in the law, he put that to death. And so when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are no longer bound to that old covenant, but we are bound to the Spirit. And we are led by a new relationship in the Spirit. So that's all review of where we've been. But there's another thing that we need to remember if we're going to get what Paul is going to say here in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7. And that is, Paul is, has been, over the last couple of chapters, he's been maintaining this dichotomy between those who are born in Adam and those who are born again in Jesus Christ. For those who have never trusted in Jesus, they are still under the curse of Adam. Their lives are defined by sin and their fleshly desires. But for those who are born again in Jesus, their lives are defined by the Spirit. 
And so Paul has been using this, this, uh, these two separate examples or these two separate placeholders, if you will, for the life that is lived in the flesh and the life that is lived in the spirit. So we gotta, we got to hold on to that. It, actually, it comes up again in chapter 8, and we've got to keep that in mind, especially as we read from Romans chapter 7 today. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, God's word says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am, the I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law, a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So in this passage, I want you to see three points today. The first is the commandment and sin. Second is the conundrum of the flesh. And the last is the clarity of the spirit. So first, let's consider the relationship of the commandment and sin. So in verses 7 through 12, Paul again asks another question of the things that he's already said. And he says, okay, if the law, if I can't obey the law fully, 
and I go on sinning even after I hear the law, then does that mean that the law is sin? Does that mean that the law is causing me to sin? If the law is incapable of making me holy, then does it cause me to do the things it forbids? So this is kind of blame shifting, right? And it's a blame shifting that every sinful human does. In fact, our first parents, Adam and Eve, did this very type of blame shifting. If you think about in Genesis chapter 3, when God finally comes to Adam and Eve after they've sinned and they are willing to come out of hiding and, and God confronts them with their sin. He asks what they've done and Adam, what does he say? He says, that woman you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate it. Now what a terrible excuse, right? Eve does a similar thing though. When God turns to Eve and says, well, okay, well, what have you done? And she says, that serpent gave me the or tempted me with the fruit and I ate. In other words, you know that creature that you made in all the grand creation that you did, God, that serpent that you put in this garden, that's the one that tempted me to do it. So what are they doing? They're blaming God for their sin. If God hadn't put these things in my life, if God hadn't put that fruit in the middle of the garden, if God hadn't put that serpent in the garden, if God hadn't given me this woman, then I would have never sinned. And we do it all the time, even today. So a, a, a husband that commits adultery will blame his infidelity on his wife, claiming that she hasn't been available to enough, enough, and that's why he's committed adultery. A person who is tempted by same-sex lust will uh, claim that their sin cannot be sinned because, quote, God made me this way. And if God made me this way, then it can't be wrong for me to carry out this sin. So Paul answers this question by explaining that the problem isn't with the law at all. The problem is with our sinful hearts. In verse 8, he says that sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to produce sinful desires and actions. In other words, because we are slaves to sin and our hearts are set against God, we find in the law of God a reason to sin. Because the law... Uh, so whenever we find out that something dishonors God, our hearts naturally want to do that thing. So because God's law points to the things that dishonor God, our sinful hearts are stirred in hearing the law to do those things all the more. So if you have children, you know this to be true. <laughs> because you can, and I've done this, feels like a thousand times, you can tell your child, don't do this. I've literally had this happen several times. Don't do this. Turn around to do something else. And turn back around and the child is doing the thing that you told them not to do. And uh, we, you know that that is because they, they were tempted or their sinful hearts were tempted by the truth 
that my command gave to them and they wanted to do the thing that I forbade them from doing because I forbade it, right? So uh, uh, St. Augustine, he gives this analogy, uh, or it's not an analogy, he gives this story from when he was a child of his neighbor having a pear tree. And uh, the neighbor was gone uh, during the day and so he and his friends... They got up in the tree and they started eating the pears and the, until they were full of pears. And then they commenced to picking every one of the rest of the pears and throwing them over the fence into the hog pen. And he said, you know, I, I often wonder why I did that. Was it because, it, and he said, it wasn't because I benefited from it in, other, in any way. I had eaten all the pears I could eat. But I just did it because it was fun to sin. I just did it because I knew it was wrong. I knew it was harmful. And I wanted to do it anyway. And so our hearts, when they are set against God, they delight in doing things that dishonor God. And so as a parent, you know, you give this command and you're not giving it for your child's harm. You're giving it for your child's good. You're giving it to protect them or to keep them from putting their hand on an eye or from picking up an axe and chopping their foot. Right, Logan? You, you give it for, for reasons that protect them. And the command itself is good, but they want to do it because their hearts are drawn sin. And this is exactly the point that Paul makes in verses 10 through 12. The law was given to point us to life. It was given to show us the holiness of God and the way of life that would be fruitful and blessed. And so Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good. But we are not. So when we encounter that which is holy, we want to defile it. So if the law is holy and good, then it should be easy for the Christian to do what the law requires, right? Because we've been set free from the bondage of sin and uh, we want to obey the law completely. And so it should be easy to obey the law. Y'all find it easy, right? No, it's not easy. So why is it not easy? Why is it that even in Christ, I go on sinning? How is it possible? And that question brings me to my second point, the conundrum of flesh. The conundrum of the flesh, which is in verses 13 through 20. Now, I don't call this a conundrum lightly because this Issue or these passages, these, uh, this passage, these seven verses have fostered no shortage of debate between biblical scholars on what exactly they mean. So there are those who believe in uh, a doctrine called sinless perfection, which is the idea that uh, once you become a Christian, you no longer sin. Or once you receive a second blessing of the Spirit, you no longer sin. And so they read this passage as though it is totally talking about before you become a Christian. And they read it to say, you know, Paul is talking about when he wasn't a Christian and the struggle of sin and all that. The problem with that view is Paul uses the present tense. He says, I am 
these things. And so it doesn't exactly fit. Others read this as a description of the present reality of the Christian, that we still struggle with temptation and sin even after receiving the Holy Spirit. And my position is that, that Paul is describing the life of the Christian who has been saved by grace and is in the process of being sanctified and who will ultimately be glorified. So we have to understand that every Christian, and this, you, brothers and sisters, you have to get this if you're going to faithfully and, and reasonably live the Christian life for the extent of your walk with Christ. And that is that every Christian is living in a time between God's initial work of conversion and justification and his final work of resurrection and glorification. You know those bumper stickers uh, that say, please be patient with me, God's still working on me. It's kind of cheesy, but it's true. That's the idea that Paul is getting at here. When God saved you through the gospel, your heart was immediately changed from one that desires sin to one that desires God. And when and you were given the Holy Spirit so that you could overcome sin. But there's one thing that didn't change when you came to Christ. Your body. Your body still bears the corruption of Adam and the habits that you formed outside of Christ. And so... When you come to Christ, those propensities and those cravings, those, some of those physical desires, they don't just disappear. So if you were given to alcohol before you came to Christ, it doesn't automatically go away. If you were a smoker before you came to Christ, guess what? You're still going to be a smoker after you come to Christ. If you, were, uh, if you wrestled and struggled with lust before Christ, then you will have lust after Christ. What has changed is your attitude towards those desires and your ability to resist them. Now, I'll say more about your ability to resist next week, but Paul addresses our attitude in these verses. So notice in verse 15 through 20, he says that we don't want to sin even when we do. And we agree with the law that we do sin when we do commit sin. And we desire to do what is right, even though so often it seems that we don't have the ability to resist. The, this inner struggle between the converted heart and spirit that longs to obey God and the sinful flesh that still feels the draw to sin is in itself evidence of God's work in the life of the Christian. So people often ask me, Brother Nathan, you know, I, I still struggle with sin and I still uh, keep going back to this same sin. And I know that the Christian is supposed to be empowered by the Spirit. So it, does that mean that I don't have salvation or that I've lost my salvation if I still struggle with those same sins? And my answer to that question is always the same. And that is the fact that you recognize that you are sinning that you are remorseful of that sin and that you want to change is evidence of God's Spirit in you and is, in my opinion, proof that you are saved. If you didn't have the Spirit of God, you wouldn't hate your sin. 
You wouldn't feel remorseful. You wouldn't want to repent. You wouldn't come to your pastor and talk to him about the struggle of sin. But because you do, it is evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in, in you. And so that brings me to my last point, and that is the clarity of the Spirit. So in verses 21 through 25, Paul describes that very struggle that I just mentioned. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war. Then he calls out in desperation, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, our sin should always drive us to this point. Brothers and sisters, we should never, ever become comfortable with our sins. It should always drive us to a point of desperation in which we cry out, I cannot do it, God. I cannot overcome this sin. I struggle with it. I wrestle with it. And I am a wretched man. Who will save me? And brothers and sisters, there is beautiful good news at the moment that we come to that point. Because notice what Paul says in verse 25. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For every sin, there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. For every struggle you have, for every temptation that you face, for every failing that you go through, there is deliverance in Jesus Christ. Christian, hear me. The gospel is for you just as much as it is for the world. And when you are wrestling in the remorse of your sins, when you are crying in your pillow in the middle of the night because you have once again returned to that temptation of sin, know that Jesus delivers you from it and that Jesus has given you victory over your sin because of what He has done, not because of what you have done. There is deliverance in Jesus Christ, even for the Christian. So Paul concludes by giving us a way to live in this between time that we find ourselves in. A way to live in this constant struggle between the flesh and the spirit. Notice he says, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. In other words, Paul recognizes that until Christ returns to bring about the final resurrection, or until we die, whichever comes first, we will always struggle with temptation and fleshly desires. And that struggle is a constant wrestling match between our minds, which have been renewed by the Spirit, and our flesh. So friend, are you okay with your sin? Are you comfortable in, uh, to rest in the slop of your sin and depravity? Maybe you are blaming God for your sin, thinking, you know, God, if you hadn't made me this way or put me in this life circumstance or given me such bad parents, then I would not be so sinful. It's not God's fault that you're a sinner. You're perfectly capable of doing that on your own. But 
you are perfectly incapable of getting out of the mire of your sin. Only Jesus can rescue you from the judgment of God. Only God's Spirit can change your desires that you would overcome sin. Won't you trust in Jesus Christ today and be changed? Brothers and sisters, the day, we, the day you came to Christ wasn't the end of your salvation. It was the beginning. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Paul compares the Christian walk to that of training like an athlete. He compares it to running and he compares it to boxing. Both of which, I don't like running, but I do like boxing, I should say. So I identify with one of two of the analogies. But he compares it to that and he says that he disciplines his body like an athlete disciplines their body to run or to box. He disciplines his body to keep it in control and to keep it under obedience to God. You see, we are called daily to do the same thing. We are called to take those fleshly desires and to train ourselves to resist them. And that training includes learning to avoid substances or people or situations that may lead us to temptation. If you were given to alcohol before you came to Christ, then that that avoidance means giving that up. Cleaning out your refrigerator, cleaning out the cabinets, getting everything out that would lead you to that temptation. It might, it might mean avoiding people that are going to tempt you to be given to that. If your temptation before Christ was to lust after a, a man or a woman and to, to be tempted by that, then you need to avoid situations that would draw you into that. You need to train your body to be under control. And it also means adopting habits that encourage holiness and discourage the flesh. So it means not just that we avoid things, but we replace them with holy things. It means that we adopt habits of scripture reading and prayer and faithful worship and discipleship and listening to things that are good and uh, assuaging those things that are bad. It means that we fill our lives with those things that renew our minds and don't draw them into further temptation. And in doing so, we train our bodies to keep them under control. May we endure in the struggle of sanctification as we live by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the Spirit that does change our hearts and give us a desire to be obedient to you. Lord, I pray that as we respond that you would call us to faithful walk with you, that you would call us to train ourselves, train our bodies to resist sin and to walk in newness of life, to walk in obedience to your word. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.